I think there are more things that bond us together than things that separate us. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2. This conversation is one I have been wanting to have for a while. On campus at Cal Poly Pomona, I teach a couple classes in a building where I pass by the sociology department. And for a while, I've been passing by this one office that has a picture of a book cover, and that book cover says, The Death Cafe. And I have been meaning to ask Who is the author of this? What is The Death Cafe? So I finally had an opportunity to reach out to the author, sociology professor, Dr. Jack Fong. This episode, we are discussing what is existentialist sociology? What is the relevance, the point, the purpose of sociology? And we will be talking about his book, The Death Cafe. So yes, we are going to have a discussion about death contemplation, what he accomplishes in his book is a way of talking about death in a dignified manner that is not upsetting or make you want to withdraw from the conversation, but it is actually a joyful celebration of life. That it is a way for us to inject meaning and purpose and a sense of serenity and dignity when it comes to human life. For example, here's a quote from his book that I really like. Understanding mortality allows us to have a shared humanity based on living and loving, a sorely needed task, lest we remain confused, distracted, unable to self-actualize, and rendered vulnerable to nihilism. So before we get started, this conversation is co-hosted by the wonderful, the talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. I'd also like to give a shout out to a new patron of the show, Dolly. Thank you so much for your support. If any of you would like to also support the show, I will link our Patreon information to the show notes. I will also link Professor Jack Fong's uh, website and information about the Death Cafe and his other publications. And if you have any questions, you can reach out, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com or tag us on Instagram. Take a screenshot of your favorite episode or this episode. Yeah, get in touch. All right, now let's talk sociology. Rudy, do you have a ponytail? I thought uh, we discussed this. Keep, just, just keep going. Just keep I thought going. we discussed this. I know we talked about it. No, but because, I can't right, listen. So every is... time you every time you put pictures up on onto Instagram <laughs> and I see the mullet, I cringe. Okay, so no, I don't. I don't have. I don't see a ponytail. I don't see a ponytail. My wife's his not wife, home. I can his wear wife it. said that he can't. He can't do a ponytail, and so I had texted him. I said, "We'll threaten her with the man bun." It's not a man bun. Will, that will allow for maybe the ponytail won't seem so bad. But all right, she's not there. <laughs> I, did, I didn't notice that at all. I really thank did. you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I really thank you. Thanks for pointing that out, Gwen. I appreciate it. That's great. Okay. I want to start with sociology. If you can give a general definition of what is sociology and then where have you found your niche in sociology because you have described yourself as contrarian to your discipline. Sure. And you know, I I really appreciate this very incisive question because a lot of people don't know about sociology until they get into college because while they were in high school, they're studying social studies, which is a very lightweight version. It's like light beer as opposed to really good stout beer from Ireland or Germany. But sociology is really, it's almost philosophical, Gwen and Rudy. It's almost philosophical. It's a study that looks at society throws in a variety of theories about society and tries to predict how society affects 
groups. So it's a discipline that studies the way societies affect groups of people, whether it is cultural, religious, whether it is gender-based, whether it is class-based, how societies affect these groups in a manner that may over-regulate them or prevent them from liberation in some way. So there's a bit of a social justice component to much of sociology today. It's really been a fascinating discipline to make operative during this time, given the very unstable political situation we have. Sociology, then, is the study of society, but primarily the groups that are running around inside society. And what do they do? And the basic ethos of a sociologist is that we believe that the liberation of the individual must first come from the liberation of the group. And that you can't claim to be that sovereign or free if you first come from a group that's being oppressed. You don't want to be an outlier or an anomaly of that group. So a great deal of sociology, and this is a criticism, is that it tends to give too much power to group-oriented activities. And over time and since the inception of the discipline, it slowly lost some of its respect for the individual ability to empower themselves. And so right now, sociology is quite tension-filled. It has so many branches. I can actually sit down with a sociologist and know nothing about the books they read. It's like meeting a doctor. Is this a pediatrician or is this an optometrist? An optometrist will know nothing about oncology or they may know very little about urology. That's where sociology is right now. It's a huge discipline. And I feel a great affinity with that area of sociology that links up with philosophy, though. I'm a big fan of philosophy because in a way I see philosophy and sociologically as simply different sides of the same epistemological coin with the exception that sociology wants some data. It wants some evidence for the, proof, uh, for the arguments the sociologist is making. It's just not going to sit there and let the concepts atmospherically float around, you see. And that's where the rigor of research comes in. That's where the discipline of getting a sample size or being an ethnographer comes in. So sociologists are forced to walk the walk, and some do it well, others don't. This is why, like most disciplines, you have some research that stays very much on the surface, and they look at the patina of life. And then you have other types of sociology, like mine, which is existential sociology. I try to strip that patina away, because so much of that layer, that veneer, is a script. And I always give this as a thought exercise to my students. I used to ask them, look, why do you have to celebrate Thanksgiving as a script? You can be thankful every day. You see, mm -hmm. this is what society layers upon you, all of these scripts. And where I come from as an existentialist is that if you want to adopt a Nietzsche approach toward living, where you give style and artistic creativity to your character, the first thing you must do is get rid of that noise that surrounds you. Because it's very noisy right now. And the way our mass media has this horrible penchant for drama makes it a lot worse because, um, in a way, drama is about getting into the minding the business of other groups. That's how drama starts. And in a way, when our society gives us these cues to work with groups through drama, it really vulgarizes our relationships to groups. That's why I think sociology is an important discipline because it looks at groups and it tries to argue that, look, some of that drama could be toxic. It could cause social change that could be regressive. But if you harness that anger and you sublimate it, it could cause positive social changes that could attend to social justice. Right. So it's a very dynamic discipline. And like the stereotype, there are primarily left-wingers in the discipline. I consider myself somewhere set in the center. I try to seek out hypocrisies and double standards on both sides. And this hasn't really resonated well with some of my colleagues. 
because obviously they are very beholden to the ideals of the left, whatever that may be. But that's where I personally am with my sociology, existential sociology, where we study our existence in this world that's been layered with so much veneer, so many scripts. You know, I, yeah. I don't know if I had mentioned this to you in the past, but I had a big argument with my father maybe a few years before he passed away over Chinese New Year's, right? Because when you celebrate Chinese New Year's, there are a few scripts you have to follow. You go home, you bow down to the black and white photographs of your ancestors, and you light some incense, and you pray. And my dad fashioned himself a devout Buddhist, and I asked him, Dad, you know, what did you pray about? He said, like most immigrant Chinese do, he said, I, I pray for prosperity and wealth and happiness. And I said, Dad, Buddha never prayed. He meditated. You know, what you're doing is actually greed. You're asking for something. I mean, if God is that busy with the ills of the world, why would he just come down to you? Oh, God, now I see the Nietzschean in you. Yes. I see the Nietzschean. You know, no, you're reminding me of the Antichrist, you know, where the the line that has always stuck out with me. This is the book by Nietzsche. If anyone's listening, they're like, I didn't mean you personally remind me of the Antichrist. I mean, the book, (laughs) Nietzsche's book, that could have sounded very wrong. I know, Um, I know. um, What I mean is I'm referencing a book by Nietzsche. Absolutely. um, Because there is a line in there that is always always stuck out to me mm-hmm. where he says there was one Christian and he died on the cross. Yeah. The whole idea is that in everybody trying to imitate this person, mm-hmm. that they're actually doing the exact opposite of that person. Right. And the attempt to follow the script, right. they are doing the very opposite that when you right. look at uh, Jesus as the man, he was right. not a follower. Right. And yet everybody has thrown themselves into this notion of disempowering themselves by yeah. being a follower. Yes. The very person who was anti-follower. Yes. yes. And you know what? As I see your Nietzschean angle there. Well, thank you. And I just want to say that I am very embedded with that statement from the great work Antichrist. But you know, Nietzsche also implied and intimated that Buddha was the only Buddhist as well. Everyone else who calls themselves a Buddhist is following that script. I mean, and, and literally you can find facts from the 42 sutras about Buddha saying, look, when I die, just spread my teachings, but don't worship me. And of course, the first thing the people did was worship him. <laughs> he started to, you know, presumably collect some of the ashes and label that as his essence. And some of the ashes have been placed in certain temples in Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand, or so these monks allege. So there's this huge clutter of form, which I sometimes worry detracts from content. My dad has the form of a devout Chinese individual loyal to culture and the faith, but that's the form. Unfortunately, the content can sometimes be impoverished. So as an existential sociologist, I ask people all the forms that exist in society and to what extent it matches the content. I mean, look at, look at Jerry Follow Jr. of Liberty University. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was just having a field day. Uh, two nights ago, I was watching uh, a satire by Stephen Colbert about that. It was, just, it was just too hilarious. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. Giving students a chance to find empowerment by cutting through that veneer or patina and trying to get to the content and in a way relegate form, right? Thank you. Relegate that form a little bit 
All right. So you find that authenticity. I think that it's one of the reasons why, um, and Rudy, you've probably experienced this, but why I tell my students to travel and I say, you want to study abroad, you need a letter of recommendation. I don't even care what kind of grades you have. I will write it for you. Like I will for studying abroad because one of the things about trying to be authentic or trying to see what you are free is that you might not even be aware that you are part of a group. And so when you are outside of, let's say for me being outside of the United States, I lived outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. I became very much aware of my identity as an American or that I could walk down the street and without saying a word, somebody knew that I was American just by, just by the look, just by the walk. And that always struck me. And also learning French as my second language and then also working on Dutch because I lived in Belgium to be on the receiving end of people looking at me. There's these reactions, right? When you're working on a language that now I'm so sensitive to, to anyone where English is not their first language, the reactions when you're trying to pronounce something. One is you're an infant, like, oh, that's so cute. You know, when you're trying to pronounce something or the other one is that you're stupid because you're Mm. having struggling with the grammar. I forget what the other, or the other one is um, kind of anger. Like, how do you not, how do you not know this? And being on the receiving end of that sentiment of trying to express something that is not my native language. And I have this whole world inside of my head, but to them, I'm just perceived as these things, either the child, the airhead or area that causes anger has made me so sensitive back in Southern California that anyone who is speaking with, let's say a thick accent or with struggling with their English, I now remember they have this whole other world in their head. And um, I think that that is such a valuable lesson to be aware of the fact that you are in groups. I mean, I've talked to my students about when we talk about free will versus determinism, Mm -hmm. this notion of, you know, of habit that you're not even aware of habit, that even the way you consume food and Rudy, you'd, you'd appreciate this. My landlord in Belgium, who's from Jordan, I remember one time he held up a fork and he said, it's a relatively new invention, only 500 years old. Now for an American, 500 years is totally different, but for someone from Jordan, 500 years is like a blip on the radar. Right. And he's holding up the fork, like new invention. 500 years old, that even the way you consume food is a matter of habit and there's all different ways to do it. So, you know, you don't realize you're part of a group until you step outside of it. And Americans are not that good at it. We don't have very many passports. And and I appreciate that sentiment. And and before I continue, I'd like to digress just a bit and celebrate Rudy's Jordanian background. Rudy, I have a student named Galia Fakuri, and she's been telling me about Petrus. And now I want to go because I'm a big fan of ruins. Yeah, it's and, pretty amazing there, really? actually. Yeah, if, you, if you've ever seen uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it'll yeah. give you a little bit of a hint of what right. it's like. Right. Uh, the, the irony in that statement, Gwen, of yeah. that gentleman saying that the fork is only 500 years old. I mean, Jordan isn't even, isn't even 100 years old. I mean, it's a made-up country. So if you, go, if you actually go back and look at the history of Jordan, there, there was no Jordan. It was, it was carved up as a result of the mandate system right. at the end of World War I. So when you go to Jordan, there's actually very few traditional Jordanians. And I learned that when I – this is kind of an interesting story that kind of dovetails into what you guys were talking about. You know, my whole life, I grew up an Arab-American. Uh, my parents always referred to Jordan as back home. And finally, mm. after um, – a cousin of mine was getting married in Beirut, so I finally made the trip over to Jordan. And 
went there and, and I had some family there and I got to talk to them and I met some people and they, and, and I was just like, Oh, I'm so happy to be here, be back where my family's from. And, and I was told immediately go, they said, well, you're, you're not really Jordanian. Your family's from this village over in Lebanon. I mean, I grew up my whole life thinking I was Jordanian. I had this, these ties to this country and, you know, to go there and say, actually, you're not, you're not really from here. Your people and your family are from this village in this village for hundreds of years ago. So places outside of the United States, they can go, you can go really far back into where you belong. It's just interesting. That had a profound effect on me because I really never identified myself as having anything Lebanese as a part of me, even though part of my mom's family was born in Lebanon. So it was just kind of, it was like eye-opening. So traveling definitely opens up your mind to being the other in a way, uh, in more ways than one. I think that's healthy, especially for Americans. I think that that's you know, it might even just be a geographical issue that mm-hmm. it takes longer for an American to get outside of the country. Mm-hmm. And so we just don't have as much access. Mm-hmm. And then there's not as much interest. And then our education system is mm-hmm. not tailored in such a way where, you know, we don't really learn other languages. We don't think in other ways. Yeah. Our education is tailored in such a way to not really to care about the history of many areas around the world unless it has a direct relationship to our own. Yes, yes. And the fact that you promote, Gwen, students to go and travel, ironically, I do the exact same thing as an opener for my urban and community sociology class, which I'm teaching right now. I I even give maps to students and I would show them where Google Street Views are not activated so that they can kind of you know, wet their lips a bit if they want to go to Barcelona, but they've never been there. At least they can walk in Las Ramblas or something like that, right? Yeah. And so I appreciate that prescription, Gwen, and the fact that Rudy, you added to that. And and, and in a way, my pedagogy in a way celebrates that too. So you're right. We need to get out of this comfort zone that you so advocate for our young students because, I mean, there's a whole issue of mental health too, right? I mean, America right now is not well. It is a country that is reckoning with itself. It's churning itself out in this cauldron of conflict and unresolved issues. And everyone is filled with angst. And I don't know if that is a little bit hyperbolic, but that's what I sense a little bit as a sociologist. That's where my radar is picking up some of the vibes. And so I think students should travel now more than ever before because mm-hmm. they need to see other coping mechanisms that can come from other cultures, other ideas, other spiritual belief systems, right? Because right now we're impoverished. Nothing is finding traction with being an American anymore. And it worries me greatly as a sociologist. I also yeah. recommend uh, just beyond traveling, if at all possible, yeah. working in another country. My, oh, my wow. first my first legal job was in Mexico wow. City. I got it between my first year and my second year of law school. I worked at a law firm down in Mexico City, and I really barely spent any time outside of the country. The only other country I'd ever been to was Canada and like, you know, Rosarito and Tijuana. So I was completely inexperienced in world travel. And I went and worked in Mexico City for, you know, a summer. And I was, I came back just a completely different person. Like I, I had one worldview uh, prior to going down there. And then when I came back, like I literally every single one of my friends and family said, wow, you've, you've changed. And I said, yep, for the better. Um, not that I was, not that I was a closed minded person before. I wasn't. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm the child of immigrants and it was always, you know, studied international relations, but living and working in another country is something that will really open you up wow. to, to taking you to the next level. Um, so mm-hmm. I highly recommend that to any students that are out there. 
if you're able to get a job in another country, even if it's just for a short time, like six to eight weeks, you and you're looking for a change in your life, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I um I remember in Belgium, I worked for a company where people wanted to work on their conversation skills for English and some wanted an American um, American English. And I will never forget this conversation I had with this woman. So grammatically, she was great. She just wanted to practice talking. But I did not realize, this would be an example of being outside of your situation, that in this company and something that was very common was that when women got married, they did not change their names. Here in the United States, it's almost as though it's a statement, right? Like you're, you're anti-marriage or you hate men or something like that, or it's some sort of a radical thing. And I remember some of the Belgians, when I learned this, they said, we don't even think about it. They said, why would you change your heritage? Why would you do that? Some businesses have it written down that you can't do that or you have to keep your last name for your contacts at work. Wow. I was having this conversation with this woman and she said, you know, she made it sound like, like nobody even thinks about it seems so outdated to change your name. And then I asked, well, what about children? What is their name? And she said, they get the father's name. And then she blushed and she, cause she obviously had a thought and she said, but I think they should have the mother's name because it is always certain who the mother is. <laughs> of course, that's a fact. And but that's damn, also damn good point. That is such a good, I didn't even think about that, but boy, but, that's a good point. But I mean, here you have two things where she's bringing up, like you can see these cultural attitudes, you know, where first of all, that it's true. The United States is hanging on to a very old school notion of marriage that I really, really had taken for granted in terms of the family name right? That it is a transfer of property that essentially we're acting out. That's what you're watching, you know, mm -hmm. that you've got, you know, the dad with one family name and here's the property that she's being paraded around um, in her white virginal dress. She's perfect. Who do you give her over to? The guy at the front says, I'll take her. And then at the end, she goes from one last name to another. You're watching a transaction. This is a terribly unromantic way to talk about marriage. Oh, cool. anyone, anyone listening, um, if you're about to get married, well, no one's getting married. We're in COVID, but I wouldn't recommend bringing this up at the party. Like you can just keep this part of the podcast. Well, can I share a funny story for you, Gwenna and, and yeah. Rudy? I think you might get a kick out of this. My wife took the name Fong only because her original Thai name is so long that most of the immigration forms that she would have to fill out her last name simply did not have enough boxes. Her last name in Thai is pronounced as such. It's Mekta Won Watana. It means very symbolically the princess from the Valley of the Fog. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is a long last name. And a lot of our forms that we were filling out when we were getting married and working on the, her visa, it just didn't have enough room for all of the letters. So yeah. she ended up choosing my last name, which is to me kind of a, a concession from purely political perspective, as you noted. I would have loved for her to say my last name means the princess from the Valley of the Fog to anyone she meets. You know, it's a conversation piece. <laughs> but now it's Fong and, and, and Fong is <laughs> kind of boring. It's fong. It yeah, if I if I had uh, if I had that long of a last name and my wife's last name had like four letters like mine, <laughs> I would definitely take her last name. <laughs> Imagine how much time you save by just writing those four little letters. I mean, come on, there's so much, so much time in the world. Right. I get it. 
that's pragmatism right there. You, good job. She's pretty practical. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's transition. Maybe we can transition to death. <laughs> we'll okay. talk about that. Talk about love, and I will talk about death. So your your work, the Death Cafe, yes. um, is an examination, which also is something that I had no idea existed. But yes. of these groups that get together to talk about death, and yes. we. I'm going to also open this up, this conversation that comes through in your work. And it's something in my own studies of philosophy, I've tried to tell students because as soon as you say death, everybody immediately wants to back away from it. But that a discussion about death is actually life affirming. And this is something that you brought out that when you have this awareness of time, you realize how special, how precious it is. And that thinking about death actually brings that about. So Could you tell us a little bit about the Death Cafe? Absolutely. And thank you once again for having the courage, both of you, for reapproaching this very difficult issue to talk about. It all started many years ago when I realized I was going to more funerals than weddings. And that for me was some sort of signal that gave me cues. I was just on the verge of understanding. And at that time, it just so happened, and this was purely coincidence, I was reading the LA Times one morning and Right there in one of the pages, it talked about the Death Cafe. And in the Death Cafe, it profiled one of the facilitators. Her name is Betsy Trapasso, and I'm so blessed to have her as a friend now. And basically, I read that this was a small gathering of people who are all strangers, Gwen. They don't know one another. When you go in there, you're not supposed to reveal your last name. And these are gatherings of strangers who bring food in a potluck format. And they sit down once a month or twice a month at a cafe, at a homemade Um, available for the public to simply talk about our mortality. And in in one of the, and actually in many passages of the work, I remind people that this entire experience should always be seen as about life affirmation and not about entering a dark cave to unpack your ultimate demise. So again, I'd like to emphasize that when you attend these death cafes, after I had read the LA Times and I had contacted Betsy for access, I realized that this was a crucial missing link for our community. Because right now, America is so divided. Back then, America was divided as well. And I'm almost cynical to the point of thinking that our forced feeding of diversity is simply a band-aid to hide the fact that we failed to integrate emotionally the feeling of being an American. And I think it's a cop-out. I think there are more things that bond us together than things that separate us. And although I understand the beauty of diversity, and I, I'm part of it myself, look at me, right? I mean. But at the end of the day, the Death Cafe brought all these diverse peoples together at these gatherings. I've been to many, many over my two years of data collection. And not one of them talked about death as an Arab American. Not one of them talked about death as a Christian. They just wanted to talk about death. Uh, They just wanted to talk about the travails. Uh, Some folks had tremendous travails. One guy drove up to Lake Castaic, had a gun pointed in his mouth and was ready to pull the trigger, but he kept looking at photographs of his family and kids, and that stopped him. And then he went into a psychiatric ward for a while, and he came out and he told us about that experience. And so it's about that huge struggle in our lives that we're in denial about. And in those very personal moments of the evening, or when you're at the desert by yourself, or when you're meditating, it surfaces and it checks on you, and you can't run from that. And what these folks at the Death Cafe do is they gather groups of people who have these intuitive surfacing of cues about their mortality. They gather them together. And no one goes in there with an identity that they're trying to uphold about death. They go in there as humans. 
And it's so beautiful to see. And I've mentioned this to you before. I've met people from all walks of life. I met people who own funeral homes. I've met people who claim to be mediums and shamans who've traveled to South America to take the ayahuasca and to take the San Pedro cactus. I met moms who lost their children from suicide. I've met people who lost their child because one of them stood in front of a Metro Link train. And so in a way, the environment was therapeutic, yet liberating, but not morbid. Mm -hmm. We looked at death as a friend that is helping us to resolve issues. And all death cafes take you there. And I don't recommend people go to it unless they are at a point, at a sweet spot in their lives when they're ready to deal with that. Although when you are there, I would bet 99% that most people would leave there feeling great. From your studies or from your experience, yes. why is it that we are so afraid of death? Or why is it considered a taboo topic? Yes. And why is it considered a downer? Well, you know, that brings up an important question. Uh, we have to look at our human condition today, right? Um, I don't see the human condition as something that is stable and constant over time. The 21st century human condition is pockmarked with media imagery that's graphic, unphotogenic, and vulgar about mortality. When you turn on the TV at night, you see drive-by shootings, you see the guy in Kenosha who's 17 carrying a, a machine gun that soldiers use. You see that about mortality. And that's going to freak the shit out of people. It's unphotogenic, it's violent, it's ugly, it's angry, and it pulls out all the toxicities of a society in self-destruction. And I think the reason why people should really give death cafes a shot is the people that go there are trying to give you another framework about what it means to have a good death. When you go to these events, what you're seeing is a sort of adventure into authenticity. People didn't realize they could talk like this. And all of a sudden, they're saying, you know what? Um, I know how I'm going to go. I won't go the way my brother-in-law went or, you know, um, I'm a near-death experience survivor and I have no fear, you know? So you go there and you, what you end up meeting are these warriors that didn't notice that they were warriors, you know, women and men who've been through the worst suffering, the worst travails, and then they're trying to pick themselves up and reassemble their lives and reassemble their meanings. You can't do it through culture. Perhaps you can't do it through religion. That's very provocative. But you can do it by looking at everyone around you and realizing, my goodness, what a healthy way to look at your passing. And you're inspired. You, know? you look at that person and you see compassion. And you look at this person who talks about green burials, which is now a very big thing in American life. Um, it's not yet mainstream, but you know, green burials are being practiced in Marin County where when you die, you basically have your body wrapped in a shroud and you're buried in the earth with no coffins no chemicals that would veneer your coffin. You're not going to destroy the earth. And if you can, you can have someone, you can request someone plant, uh, put a seed on your body and let a tree grow from it. Right? Hey, Rudy, we'll put a, no, you know how I want to go is Game of Thrones style. Like I want to be set out into the water and then have them do like the archery and then light like my corpse on fire out. In I, the... I, I, I don't, can you, I don't. Can, wait, can we have that? You're a lawyer. We can put that in writing, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I don't plan on dying. And, and if I do ever <laughs> temporary take some sleep, I plan on coming back as a zombie. So nope, uh, I'm going to have a nice, comfortable Brady, what kind of a tree am I going to put on you? <laughs> There's no, no tree because I, I, I'm living, I'm living forever for at least three million years. There, I would just got to I'm just going to transfer my body into a computer and just keep going from there. I mean, look, you know, Elon Musk, I think he's coming out soon with the brain chip yeah. connected to a computer. Yeah. I, I just got to, that's why, that's why I'm working out so much and taking care of myself. Not only is it COVID-19 and I've got very young mm -hmm. kids, 
I just got to hang on until we can transfer our bodies into a computer and then live forever. Like that's, that's what I feel like we're racing up against. Is that a crazy thought, Jack? Or do you think that that's within our future? In all honesty, I think the term forever implies physics. And the fact is we do have this infinitude that is beyond what we can grasp. So I see nothing wrong with that view at all. And who knows, who are we existing this blip of time in this infinitude of deep time? Who are we to even think that science has its hegemonic conclusive rendering of your passing? And like you, hey, I am ready to have a consciousness that transcends this little loan from nature. You know, I'm ready for that. If, but I just hope that they don't get hacked. The software that runs my consciousness in the future is not hacked. But I'm ready to give this notion of eternity a chance. But then I have to ask myself when I make statement, statements like that, whether I'm being hypocritical, because the whole point about the death cafe is, look, whatever happens, you just accept this as is. And most people that go to death cafe are not as sophisticated as you, Rudy, thinking about the possibilities of cryonics or artificial intelligence that could be uploaded. They're very afraid. They're human beings. They're parents. They are wounded people. And many of them cannot find resolution through culture. And fortunately, the death cafe is that little element of culture that's everywhere now. That's allowing people who have this need to understand their mortality, a place that's safe, inclusive, and absolutely open to all diverse renderings and narratives about our mortality. So, As yeah. somebody who is deathly afraid of death, mm-hmm. and that fear affects me and a lot of the things that I do, I mean, I think that it affects my um, obsessive compulsive disorder, it affects some of the things that I've done during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think that the way that I have been dealing with death is by telling myself, don't worry, you are going to live forever. You're going to figure out a way to transcend it. That might just be the way I deal with it. And yeah. maybe that part of me, I mean, clearly that's you know partially a delusion and I understand that, yeah. but that's my own death cafe is nope, I'm going to escape it. So I'm yeah. just going to continue to live my yeah. life and, yeah. and do things and yeah. you know take some risks, yeah. but that might be the way I deal with it. And that might be a horrible way. Maybe I'm setting myself up for disaster later on in life. But I guess I'm just not ready to accept it right now. Yeah. I, I honestly don't think that people at the Death Cafe would in any way dismiss your views. I think they would be thoroughly delighted with it. Because the Death Cafe is an unscripted environment. This goes back to the whole existential thing about being authentic. It's unscripted. The host introduces everyone by their first names only. People start to drink coffee and eat, and they just talk for two hours. It is absolutely raw. It's like sushi, really. So if you had gone to one of these death cafes and you were able to articulate what you articulate, I think you would inspire a bunch of people toward your view of forever, of this infinitude. And, you know, I dabble with that, too. I dabble with this notion that, my goodness, our consciousness is so profoundly deep. It's so incisive. How can it just go away with this body? I mean, it's an energy source. But then again, you'll, how do we get energy for the brain when there's no body pumping oxygen to that brain? So that's what I'm struggling with. But then again, science is young. It's what, two, 300 years old? Right? I mean, give it a, another thousand years or another Younger than years. the fork. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we just started classes at Cal Poly yeah. and I always start my intro classes with Socrates' defense, the, yes. the apology. And I tell my students that it, this piece of literature, as opposed to maybe anything else that I teach, I've been going over with students for, you know, a couple decades now. Mm-hmm. And it always 
is important for me to go over because it reframes what's important for my life. So I have never, ever gotten tired of talking about this one piece of literature, which is Socrates' defense. And I always point out one of the most important things that I think he says in there, it has to do with death, where he says rhetorically to the jury, some of you might be thinking, aren't you ashamed that you are now, that you have done something that will now cause your death? He answers that a man of any worth does not live according to life or death, but according to what is right or what is wrong. And at the same time, right now, I'm reading John Lewis's memoir. I just Mm -hmm. needed to, I needed to get my hands on some goodness in the world because Mm -hmm. the world just feels like it's shit right now. And so I thought I needed to read about some good human being, you know? (laughs) And John Lewis is describing, also he was a philosophy major, so there, Rudy, when you say, what are you going to do with that? You can be John Lewis. All right. Rudy teases me about philosophy. But, um, but so I didn't know that John Lewis was a philosophy major, but John Lewis is also describing these very Socratic ideas about going into these areas where that he is aware that he will be physically harmed. And he has to train himself in such a way not to not fight back but to not have the desire to fight back. Mm -hmm. And that that is the power in the nonviolent movement. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me now I'm looking at the Socrates notion, you know, in this way of that is how we judge what makes life worth it. Are you acting rightly or wrongly? And that is when you care about your soul as Mm -hmm. opposed to when you care about the body, because Mm -hmm. that was even Socrates's approach to the Athenians. He says, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm 70, I'm going to be dead. You guys have to live with the fact that you executed a man. That's right. And so it's always, like I said, I always like revisiting it. And it's a way of talking about death, but it's not a negative thing. It's that it's not something, you know, in the view of Socrates, to be afraid of it would be to value the least valuable thing, which is your physical self. The most important thing is the way in which you conduct yourself, is your, your soul and your character. And when you take wow. care of that, then you don't need to worry about the physical self. So fear, fear of death, he also says, presupposes a knowledge of what cannot be known, which is that we do not know what happens after death. So to be afraid of it is to presuppose knowledge of it. Well, I agree with the rationale behind that. It sounds as cleanly structured as can be. This conversation is so deep. I just want to throw this out there to both of you. If you want to not feel that toxicity of America, if I'm ever in Thailand and you want to visit the country to ride elephants around 800, 900-year-old ruins, let me know. My family, my son will take you on a tour. We'll be the host with the most. Oh, I want to do it. Yeah. I mean, just, you know. I'd love to if, if usually every summer I'm there, I would normally be there this summer and I normally would be there this winter, but with the restrictions, who knows what's going to happen. Oh. But it goes back to the- I want to go. Let's do a podcast from Thailand. Yeah. yeah, you would love it. And if you like <laughs> Thai food, it would be enjoyable. Just know that you have a friend there. And if you ever want to do something completely unconventional, you got to party like the Thais. You know, they were never colonized. They, they were the only Asian country in Asia never colonized by European power. So they have this little swagger to their sense of sovereignty. You know, um, if you go to certain parts of Asia that have suffered under the Vietnam War and whatnot, you, you, you feel a little bit of the anti-imperialist angst. But in Thailand, they welcome everyone. You know, they don't view Westerners as a threat. They're like, hey, welcome to the land of smiles. Let's have some Thai beer. You know, Thais are very free-flowing. 
Can I wear a, can I wear my ponytail there? Can I just please wear it there without any judgment? I can't, I can't even wear it around my house. I can't even wear it on this podcast without any judgment. <laughs> it sounds actually, like I'm going to Thailand. They will never come after you for how you dress because Thais are pretty tolerant. But anyone Asian looking probably should not wear red or yellow because at this moment, the unresolved political issues in Thailand are being heavily inflected by color schemes that represent different polarized political parties. That's all. But it doesn't really apply to both of you. But if you're Asian, you go to Thailand, you don't want to wear red or yellow, right? Bringing up Asian just really yes. quick. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I've studied this issue a lot. And I grew up with Asians. Part of my family is Asian. Yes. My dad's brother married a Korean woman. Another mm-hmm. dad's brother married a Chinese Hawaiian woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jordan is in Asia, right? And, right, right, um, right, right, right. you know, back at the turn of the century, the late 1800s, there were these cases of new immigrant Arab Americans that proved in court that they were actually white. So they could actually get the vote and they can actually come back and forth in between the two countries. And so they kind of dismissed their, their Asian side of everything yeah. and they proved that they were white. But I've personally always considered myself Asian because it's very clear that Jordan is a part of Asia and I've grown up with Asians. But is that I mean, all my Asian friends really love it, but you know, you and I are still getting to know each other. How do you react when I say something like that? I'm curious. Doesn't bother me at all. I think identities are highly fluid. I don't politicize culture as much as a lot of left-wingers do. In fact, I even go as far as say I use the term Asian very loosely and in a very undisciplined manner because the fact is when you're in that part of Asia I go to, there are no Asians. You're either Vietnamese, Cambodian, South Korean, or Chinese. And unlike, let's say, South America, where you can get someone to understand Spanish, whether you're from Peru or from Argentina, and even though Portuguese is not Spanish, it is part of the Latin Romance language. So there's a a bit of a porous understanding between those linguistic systems. Uh, The fact is, in Asia, people are so different. They have such different trajectories, and they fought one another in horrible, horrible conflagrations. So for me to use the term Asia, in Asia, I cannot do. But in America, yes, I say I'm Asian-American. If they want to pick my brain, I'll say I come from my geographical womb of Laos and Thailand, although I'm ethnically Chinese. And it gets to be more and more complicated. And to be honest with you, I'm very lazy to say, look, I'm ethnically Chinese. My dad was an Air Force pilot. That's why we were in Laos. And then Laos fell to the communists. And then we moved to Thailand. And I was raised there in Thai culture. Most people don't have the time to hear that about me. And, and I'm too humble to have to express that type of blame about who I am. Again, I try to return to being a human being. And I think right now people are forgetting how to be human. They're being a culture, they're being a religious belief, they're being a class, but we're forgetting what it means to be human. And I bring up Nietzsche's great work, Human All to Human. That's an important project for our culture right now. Uh, And Nietzsche was one person that said one of the big things about culture is they don't make good people. They need to have a cultural prescription where culture makes great human beings. And, I, and I'd like to be part of that project uh, on my own terms. I'd like to become a better person because I see so much pain caused by one another right now. And I don't want to add to that anymore. That's my personal project. It may have very little bearing because I'm living at home most of the time and I barely step out. But I try to smile. And the sad thing about, you know, Thais are, or, you know, Thailand is known as Atlanta Smiles. And I want to smile to people, but I can't because I'm wearing my mask. So it's kind of really a sad place to be right now as an American. I love to smile at people. You know, I think smiling is a very simple pleasure that I get from meeting people. But I even can't do that now because I wear a mask. There's, you know, 
Now I'm thinking about something, about the study of groups, that there seems to be a collision of ideas here and that we want both. We want to identify with a group. And at the same time, if you are ever reduced to that group, like somebody knows you because you're part of that group, that's problematic. How does sociology deal with that? So with that collision of identifying in order to explain yourself to yourself or to others, and at the same time, finding it insulting that somebody would think that they understood you because of that. That's such a great question. And the honest answer, it's it's such a great question because this is a question theorists write about. Sociologists cannot deal with that. They haven't yet resolved that issue. This is why they make way for psychology to give us a reading about living in society as well. This is why we make way for literature that comes from social psychologists. We have not yet resolved the tension between the individual and the group, and we know that tension exists. So that's my honest to goodness professional answer. We have not resolved that schism yet. But to most sociologists, the intuitive understanding is the group isn't that different from the individual. Yes, it does output certain things like culture and beliefs and ideologies that cannot be reduced to one person. But in its normal operations of daily living, the group is not that regulatory upon the individual. So they're in a way saying the individual has their space. And it's okay for that moment for them to come out, like Anne Rand's celebration of the individual. But then the sociologists are always arguing about systemic vulnerabilities. And when the system breaks down, and they see that a lot, as you know, Marxists see capitalism as a flawed system, then you got to go to the group. So the best answer I can give you is to see what branch of sociology you're looking at and to see if it's optimistic or pessimistic. The optimists see this huge symbiosis, the synchronicity between the individual and the group, and there are no tensions. But then you got the hardcore Marxists and other camps that argue, well, I don't know about that because once you increase group size, you're going to formalize things. And formality means a structuring of power. And how do we know that the structuring of power doesn't deny certain people their power? So it's an issue we have not resolved yet. It's an issue that we've struggled with, Gwen, since the birth of sociology. And Nietzsche, that's why he was so ticked off at sociologists in the beginning. He said, these darn sociologists, all they do is give us prescriptions for massive movements of people to get an outcome. Where's the individual in that process? Nietzsche was the first to attack sociology, but his attacks on early sociology are so good that modern sociologists attack the same sociologists Nietzsche attacked in hopes that they could come up with a better resolution that would unite the schism between the individual and the collective. Hasn't been done yet. Okay. Yeah, hasn't been done yet. Jack, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to going into a deaf cafe and, you know, converting people to my robot uh, (laughs) army. Um, Hey, I want to go to Thailand and be on an elephant. That's my thing. Yeah, me too. I want to wear a ponytail. uh, Rudy, you're okay with being on an elephant? Oh yeah, I love elephants. I think. All right, so that's not creatures. in the. Okay, all right. Yeah. Let's not romanticize our pachyderms because elephants are cute. <laughs> They're cute in photographs, but if you ever go to a sanctuary, you're gonna have to volunteer to clean their pen. You don't want to deal with the number two. Of Can elephants. I volunteer, yeah. Rudy? <laughs> I would do it. And, and as an Arab American, if you've never ridden on a camel, let me tell you, there. I mean, that is a that is an experience. They are very mean, mean animals, and and it's kind of interesting because like Arabs have this kind of you know like we have this you know tension. I think the camel has rubbed off on Arabs, but but elephants <laughs> seem very nice and kind. And you're telling me that the Thai people are very nice and kind. I wonder if there's some kind of correlation there. What do you well, think? you know? What? Am I crazy? Am I sounding crazy? No, not at all. My last point too, and you're actually very accurate. You know. 
there have been some theorists, anthropologists that have argued the Thai greeting of saying hello, where you clasp your hands, may have been an emulation of affections that elephants have shown one another when they lift their trunk up. That, that's just an argument. Do you know what camels do? They spit on people. So uh, yeah, don't mess with Arabs is basically, and don't mess with camels is basically the point there. Sorry. I got close to a camel and everyone, I was in Egypt and everyone in my group was like, don't you know that they spit? I was like, I oh, had yeah. no idea. Yeah, I'm just looking know. at the eyelashes. I was transfixed. Beautiful eyelashes. Beautiful. Probably the best in the animal kingdom. <laughs> do not get near them. Do not get near them. Oh my God. Okay. Jack, thank you thank so much you. for joining thank the you, show again. Hello to all of your sociology students who are going to be listening to this. All Take right. Care. See you, thank Jack. You. Bye-bye, Gwen. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Professor Fong, for joining the show. Thank you, Rudy Salo, for being an awesome co-host, as always. And if you would like to help the show out, please rate and review it. Spread the word. Take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode. Tag us on Instagram. Yeah, okay. So, wear your mask, social distance, continue to not hoard toilet paper, and until next time, bye.